we as the church have to respond to these changes. Uh, the idea of the shock absorber is the shock absorber will happen, um, but we can actually choose to use the shock absorber in a biblical way if we actually have the generations come together and think biblically about each shock that we experience and then think through together, first of all, what is the change in society? Why has that change taken place? What does the Bible have to say about that? And then how can we as a whole church, not just young people or old people, respond to that? Let's get going. Welcome to the Shock Absorber podcast brought to you by Soul Revival Church. My name is Joel and I'm a member of Soul Revival Church and we're here at the Soul Revival Arts Collective on a Sunday afternoon to begin a discussion on how the church can better adapt to our constantly changing world. And to do this, we'll be taking a look inside the shock absorber model or theory or however we want to call it, but it was pioneered by our senior pastor, Stuart Crawshaw, who so happens to be here with me today as well. How are you, Stu? Yeah, g'day, Joel. <laughs> are you excited to do this? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's going to be fun, I think. Um, I thought we could start with something that um, some people might not know about you. Why don't we start with your favourite film that impacted you the most? Yeah, I think uh, I really love films and because I'm getting on, I've got quite a, a long list of films that I've enjoyed over the years. But one that I really love from years ago was a movie called The Breakfast Club. And I think that movie was probably the most impacting movie on me when I was younger. And it's interesting that it's still something that I think about. Uh, the concepts that were in the movie were really interesting. Basically, the whole premise of the movie, if you haven't seen it, is a bunch of teenagers in the late 80s or mid 80s, I can't remember, mid 80s, they get detention. And so they all have to stay back at school during a Saturday detention. But what made the movie interesting was that they had to be on detention with each other, despite the fact that they're all from different groups within their uh, school cohort. So there was Sporto Kid and there was a guy who was portrayed as a bit of a criminal and then there was the uh, yeah different types of kids. And the interesting thing in the movie was each of these teenagers actually had less in common with each other than they even had with right. um, other generations. So I got really interested that during the movie they actually become good friends. And so I think the impacting thing was that they embraced difference amongst each other rather than embracing sameness. And in a divided world where people uh, tend to find their tribe, stick in it and sort of not really mix with other people who are different to themselves. I loved the vision of a group of young people who were actually all different, but they actually got together and uh, overcame their differences. So, yeah, that's my favourite movie, I think, actually. <laughs> was there, was there uh, um, one of those kids in that movie that you were particularly identified with? Um, I don't really think so because, like, I, I think... I think I'm pretty monochrome kind of person. I don't think I fit into any of those demographics perfectly well. But they had a nerdy dude who was there on detention. And I think I was probably, when I was a teenager, I was more nerdy than anything else. So I think I probably associate with him, if anyone. Yeah, okay. Um, so why don't we actually get into the podcast? Um, we'll quickly, quickly clear up that this isn't actually a podcast about car mechanics. Stu, what is the shock absorber and can you give us the elevator pitch on it? Yes, awesome. So yeah, it, you, could, you would be... Uh, not wrong in confusing it with car <laughs> mechanics. But the, the shock absorber theory occurred to me when I thought about the fact that um, when you look at the church in a changing world, there's a number of cultural shocks that take place uh, that the church needs to navigate. So when you particularly look back over the last, say, 50 years, just in 
in that period of time there's been a great deal of social change there's a lot of movement in the broader culture around ideas people uh, reshaping their thoughts on traditional values and things that the churches have taught and taken for granted that people just accept for centuries uh, within that period of time a whole heap of things have changed so when I've looked at those cultural shocks I've thought to myself that um, it's kind of like this is the metaphor I've come up with anyway it's like the church is like a car that's driving through through time and as the car goes through time it's driving along a road and as the car drives over the road it comes across certain bumps in the road and those bumps in the road are like the cultural shocks now how does a car on a road navigate a bump on the road well the way it does it is through its shock absorbers so if a car doesn't have shock absorbers and it's driving along a road and it hits a bump then it's quite a jarring experience but with a shock absorber built into the car the shock absorber itself absorbs the impact of the cultural shock or in the case of the metaphor just the physical shock and the physical shock is distributed more gradually across the rest of the car because of the uh, ability of the shock absorber to absorb that shock in in part and so i thought about that theory and i thought well if the church is like a car driving through time and the bumps in the road are like cultural shocks what is the cultural shock absorber that the church has and i thought to myself maybe the cultural shock absorber is actually young people because as i thought about it i thought well young people are often at the forefront of cultural change young people are often the first to respond to a cultural change because they're living in the world that is changing probably the fastest and so the ideas and the methods that young people come up with particularly christian young people as they try and adapt their ministries to a changing environment what uh, I've seen and other authors have talked about is that young people are like an experimental part of the church where the church can experiment with new approaches to cultural change. And if young people come up with a new way of doing things in a new cultural environment, then the lessons that they learnt can get translated more gradually through the rest of the church or the car. So the shock absorber in brief is young people are the shock absorber of the church. And so my encouragement to churches is that we should be actually seeing if we can get young people and old people to work together in local churches rather than being separated by special interests or by differences as per the movie The Breakfast Club because again in The Breakfast Club the, the the kids didn't get on with each other but the kids hated the I suppose one thing they had in common in the movie was that they all hated their parents more than they hated each other so that kind of brought them together initially but what I think can happen in the church is unfortunately the generation gap that's generally in our society is actually sometimes present in our local churches and My thought is, wouldn't it be terrific if we can get older and younger Christians working together as we listen to the young people tell us about the cultural change they're seeing? Maybe we can bring the Bible and spiritual wisdom to bear in a conversation about culture and faith that the church could actually have a dynamic flexibility within it as it adjusts to cultural change. Yeah, exactly. When you're talking about cultural change, it also makes me think of uh, businesses, for example, who don't adapt to the changing circumstances within their market. Yeah, and then yeah. They, they die out. Is that something you kind of think about too, is that the church will, in a sense, not die out, but will not be as uh, influential in different areas of culture because it's not willing to adapt? Well, I think I think churches... The, the challenge for the church, particularly the Protestant church that we're a part of in our context here at Soul Revival as, a, as an Anglican church in Sydney, we, we have a bit of a dilemma because our dilemma is that we want to pass on the ancient... Uh, biblical values that we hold to so dearly and we love in a changing cultural environment so our challenge is not to change the message but actually to think about 
Um, but the, de- how we, the delivery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how do we how do we hold on to our theology yeah. and come up with new flexible strategies for communicating that theology to the world? So obviously we need to continue to preach the gospel and to declare the gospel because when people hear the gospel, that's how they can actually respond to Jesus in faith after they hear the good news. Uh, what What's interesting is that when you look at the cultural choices churches make sometimes, uh, unfortunately, sometimes what we can do in attempting to hold on to our theology is we can actually canonize cu- cultural expressions of that theology that have been um, cultural expressions that have been helpful in the past. So, for example, um, within within the Anglican Church, uh, for many generations, the ministers in the church would wear robes and collars at all services, uh, and that was culturally. And you still do that now? Well, <laughs> yeah, everywhere. Not no. really. <laughs> no, no. Well, that's well, that's why I raised it. Yeah, because what we've looked at is that that's that's a cultural expression of our. Uh, tradition, uh, not that tradition is all bad, but we we you know use the Bible as a reference point. We work out what are the traditions that we want to continue to carry on into the future. But as we look at our culture changing, what are the traditions that aren't that necessarily and not necessarily um, something we have to continue in? So in the Anglican Church in Sydney, which is different to other Anglican churches around the world, some churches make different decisions on this. But in Sydney, more and more churches are you'll find on a on a on a Sunday that the ministers aren't wearing robes and sometimes not even wearing a collar in church and yet they're still preaching the same message. Um, I think the idea behind that is that there's something helpful in looking at the context uh, into which the gospel's being preached. Okay. Speaking of those robes, are they uncomfortable to wear? They can be warm in <laughs> summer. Sydney gets quite hot. <laughs> um, you talked about churches adapting to the cultural shocks that happen within society. What would be an example of that that happened in, for example, the last 50 years that you were speaking of? Yeah, well, one that I think most people will be really familiar with because most of us have lived through this cultural shock is the cultural shock that's taken place since the iPhone's been invented. Mm. So 2008 was uh, the launch of the iPhone when Apple launched that. And since the Apple iPhone was launched, many companies have copied the same idea and created Androids as well and different mobile phones. But the impact of the mobile phone is really interesting because when there's a new technology, new technology changes the way people live. And when people change the way they live, that creates new values. New values create new cultures. So, for example, one of the big changes of mobile phones is that uh, now Australians, more Australians uh, use mobile phones than landlines. And so a mobile phone is a person's more preferred form of communication. And when you look at the ability to communicate that a mobile phone gives you uh, and the opportunity to access social media, we can see that more and more Australians have connected up with people in Australia and around the world through social media. So in one way, we're more connected to people than we ever have been. But in a strange way, that hasn't led to a feeling of connectedness in the real world. So one of the cultural challenges we have as a church is how does the church adapt to the invention of the iPhone. Now, sometimes we don't need to adapt. Sometimes we just keep doing what we're doing. But uh, it's it's obvious that, that that technology has created ministry opportunities for us and ministry challenges for us. So my argument is if you see the iPhone as a bit of a cultural bump in the road for the church that the church needs to navigate, my encouragement would be for churches to have a conversation between young people and the older people in the church, create spaces where they can come together to talk about what if impact, if anything, the mobile phone has on on the culture of being a Christian. 
and how does that affect our Christianity? So uh, in having that conversation, we can actually be flexible in an environment that's changing so that's sort of how i see it is there some other ones that you maybe don't need to delve into as deeply as you did there but what other cultural socks there are so i know that you've talked about the sexual revolution of the 60s is there other ones that you can think of off the top of your head yeah just just briefly yeah the the invention of the pill um was a major factor in the development of the sexual revolution which is continuing to evolve people's attitudes to sexual identity and and many other things uh like that um even something as banal as the mass production of the motor car in the early 1950s late 1940s change that everyone moved. well everyone yeah. starts purchasing mobile mo- mobility really so what ended up happening from that cultural shock was that once upon a time most people lived in proximity where they went to work and where they uh, lived but now uh, with the car um, we could create commuter suburbs in sydney where where um, people could actually drive to work in the city from from there. So instead of people living in extended families in the cities, they are now actually migrating into nuclear families in the suburbs. So that transformed the family unit quite a lot, created a new need for more churches in the suburbs, but it also changed the way people were living. Another example is um, uh, the fact that housing prices have gone up so much and, uh, you know, that'll have an impact on on how the church functions. The fact that uh, more and more women come into the workforce uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and onwards after the Second World War, that also changes the way the church operates because for many generations the church was relying on on female volunteers to help in the operation of a whole heap of the different things that were happening in church. Now that uh, men and women are working, that can in some cases reduce volunteerism in churches. So what is the response of churches? So... We, we, we as the church have to respond to these changes. Uh, the idea of the shock absorber is the shock absorber will happen, um, but we can actually choose to use the shock absorber in a biblical way if we actually have the generations come together and think biblically about each shock that we experience and then think through together, first of all, what is the change in society? Why has that change taken place? What does the Bible have to say about that? And then how can we as a whole church, not just young people or old people, respond to that? Mm. And I think, um, I know that you've uh, also like mentioned the Industrial Revolution, if you're going back even yeah, if you further go back, back, that's, yeah, a, that's yeah. a big one too. So with the Industrial Revolution, yeah. that, started from, that started the whole ball rolling really because the invention is the steam engine meant that there was this mass migration from the villages to the cities. So I've already mentioned that people were living in cities uh, before the Second World War in extended families, but before the Industrial Revolution, back in the 1700s, most of the population of the world lived in villages, 70% in England, but within a period of decades, all the jobs dried up in the countryside and all the people migrated to the new jobs in the cities, and so these extended families were uh, actually finding that they needed uh, different uh, situations. So the church found that really difficult to adjust to back in, in that time too. And I know that from from that you've obviously got the cultural shocks that happen within society, but you've also spoken about how you've used an idea of youth ministries actually being the best way to adapt to that. Can you talk about, I know you've mentioned cycles of youth ministry before, What does how does that kind of play into the shock absorber? Yeah, well your question about the Industrial Revolution is a good place to start there because uh, there's a, a, a youth ministry writer by the name of Mark Centre III who wrote a seminal book in the early 90s called The Coming Revolution in Youth Ministry 
And uh, you can still get that on Amazon if you're interested in looking it up. But basically in that book, he goes back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to say that that was the birth of modern youth ministry as we know it. So before the Industrial Revolution, young people were brought up as a matter of course in villages in England where the Industrial Revolution started. And in those villages, the church was the center of life. And so a lot of the rhythms of life revolved around the seasons and around um, people participating in the parish life of the church. When the Industrial Revolution happened, there was a whole migration to the cities, as we talked about, and there's a lot of dislocation. So there was a lot of young people growing up without God because young people were now forced to work in factories. They were chimney sweeps working in mines. Uh, added to that, kids who didn't have a job were actually left to their own devices on the streets. You might have seen the movie or read the book Oliver. That was all about that generation. And so these, these kids that didn't actually have families even... Um, had a need for the gospel but the church's infrastructure was still across all the countryside so it was difficult for the institution of the church to respond quickly to such a rapid change so what one of the the uh, fillers was for that was that uh, there were people who started to lay people concerned lay people in the church who started to see that problem emerging in their own communities and started to think what what can we do about these young kids that aren't hearing about the gospel and so there were people like robert rakes who uh, started the sunday school movement who he he actually invited kids just to come around to his place on a sunday morning and they had these big bible studies in his lounge room of all these kids that came and he was teaching them how to read and write using the bible but he was also sharing the gospel with them and now that sunday school idea started as a grassroots expression like that and quickly they began to write a sunday school newspaper and that Sunday school newspaper kind of captured the reality of what was happening in one location so that it could be spread all over the place. And within a few decades, it had become the biggest youth movement in the world. Wow. So Sunday schools were started up off the back of people reading the Sunday school newspapers in America, in Australia. In fact, in Australia in the early 1800s, the first Sunday school in Australia was set up by the, the, the children of an Anglican minister at Parramatta. And his kids started a Sunday school for Aboriginal uh, young people and British young people who all uh, were together in the one Sunday school. And so that was a really good example of how a grassroots movement can be started by concerned lay people who see that there's a cultural shift and they actually have a new idea. Now the interesting thing is that that movement eventually, if it's successful, institutionalises. In other words, over time it gets so big that it starts to get uh, presidents and treasurers and it starts to write they they write procedures and manuals and so like they start to forget about what it was really about or like it was yeah, not as effective yeah so so those things are helpful to help it to spread but then people can start running sunday schools that don't have the original heart for it that the originator robert rakes had and so uh, in some places the sunday schools just became about teaching good morals to kids for example misses the mark really Miss the mark yeah and more importantly center says really interestingly that after a 50-year period because the industrial revolution has started change constant change has become part of um, our world because new technologies are constantly coming out that means the society is constantly changing 50 years he reckons after that first sunday school culture had changed so much that that original idea had no longer got the same currency and because it had been institutionalized the movement of the sunday school was no longer able to change in response to the new changes too. So Centre's idea is, I think, quite clever because he says every 50 years since the Industrial Revolution, there's come a new cycle in youth ministry. 
and each one follows the same pattern as the original Sunday school. So the Sunday school was able to be flexible where the institutional church wasn't able to be. After 50 years, the uh, Sunday school was replaced by the YMTA that was actually able to adapt to the new changing environment. 50 years after that, Centre argues that Christian Endeavour was a new approach, a new grassroots movement that went through the same form again of a new fresh idea that became a movement that institutionalised. But again, by the 1940s, Christian Endeavour had become fairly institutional. and Related the, to stuff coming out of the war. Yeah, well, the Second World War and the, the, the Depression meant that that was no longer relevant. And Billy Graham came along with his Youth for Christ model, which then actually became a new model of youth ministry. So according to Centre, by the 1990s, we were waiting for another cycle because he was strict on his 50-year cycles. But what I'm thinking is that as the Industrial Revolution has gone forward, change is happening quicker and I think the cycles are getting shorter. So I uh, personally think that Centre missed the Jesus movement as a natural cycle of youth ministry in the 1960s, which we can talk a bit about today, but it would be fun to re-look at that again another time. Do but, more detail? Yeah, but that's sort of set up uh, for the second half of the 20th century. And what I'm, what I'm exploring at the moment is how many cycles have we had since um, then that we might be able to identify because as we identify a cycle what we're actually doing is looking at a new bump in the road and we're looking at a new opportunity to bring the church together in a space where we can talk about that cultural challenge for example the iphone i think is one of those bumps in the road that that we often don't talk about it we just often just assume that the way we used to do church will always be the way it will be done until sometimes the car gets so shaken up by the bumps in the road that the nuts and the wheels start coming off the car and that's when we stop and try and analyse it. What I'm sort of suggesting is as soon as we identify a cultural change, why don't we talk about it from the early stages on and that'll speed up the process so that rather than waiting for a youth ministry model to come up with a new way of doing things that then institutionalises, we might be able to speed it up a little bit. Because the reality is that the institutions of the church find it difficult to relate to movements. But once the movement has become itself an institution, that new idea has the institutionalized language that other institutions can understand. So presidents of the Sunday school can talk to heads of the church and all of a sudden you can see what started as a grassroots movement in a, someone's lounge room actually ends up becoming replicated in local churches all over the world. And so what I'm thinking we are not doing enough of at the moment is is creating that opportunity for us as a church to talk about cultural change as it happens and I suppose start a conversation as we identify a new challenge to the church or even a new opportunity for the church as culture changes. Yeah, and it comes across to me as like a very, um, this is a blatant saying, but adapt or die really is that, and of course if we're not in that mentality and especially if the changes are happening more and more often it's going the church is going to become more and more irrelevant just as a result of that would you agree with that do you think well well i think in in one way the gospel is always going to be uh continuing to grow in every generation so um the gospel is relevant through every generation but it is interesting when you look at our city in sydney you do have churches in certain pockets where uh, a church was set up with a certain cultural demographic that it was reaching out to and would, would that be like age or like yeah uh, well, you've got families or something like that yeah or or um or sometimes you'll see a church that's set up in the 1950s that was busting at the seams with a sunday school of a thousand kids say in the st george area of the sutherland shire 
or um, uh, you know uh, someone like um, that where there's a big demographic change because of immigration so um, uh, maybe there's an area where a lot of people move in who are from an Italian background and there's a lot of uh, people from a Greek background for example and maybe the church that was busting at the seams with a thousand uh, kids was very Anglo-Saxon and wasn't actually uh, seeking to engage with some of these new migrant communities that were moving into the area then what you can see today is in some places in Sydney you can see these great big beautiful old churches that used to have hundreds of people going every week but are actually not seeing many people using the church anymore as a result of the fact that that local gathering I suppose didn't start the conversation early enough about cultural change and how it could continue to preach the same gospel but to a different group of people because sometimes speaking to a different group of people will bring new opportunities and new challenges so that's how I think the shock absorber might help us because our all our all our societies are changing in in ways that we can sometimes see and sometimes we can't and my premise is it's often young people that are seeing that early so uh, the next question I have is our church is set up for young people and old people to have places where they can have a safe place to regularly talk about uh, matters of faith in a culturally changing place yeah I think that's really cool because then I know obviously you've been thinking about it really deeply for a very long time and you're doing a PhD around it now, as you said, in terms of the newer kind of cultural shocks. Where did this kind of start for you? Like, where did it come from? Did you solve? It, feel like you needed to solve a problem and had to go deeper into it? Yeah, so uh, my, my experience growing up in uh, Guymer Anglican Church in the 1980s was that um, all, of the fr- all of my friends at Guymer Anglican who were my age actually ended up leaving the church by the time they hit 18. And so... I, I suppose I was a bit bemused by that because there was about, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 of us going through our youth group years. Now, some of those young people went to other churches, which, which was great, but most of them actually ended up going up the pub on a Sunday night instead of staying at church. And so that got me feeling like, this, what, why is that happening? And, um, and that was probably the starting point for me. In fact, there was one night at church where I was... Uh, sitting in the church and uh, I was standing I was actually sitting in the pew uh, rather where we'd all sat for years you know um, I remember growing up at Gorham Anglican Church and sit cramming into this pew together heaps of young people all squashed in together and we'd be passing notes and talking about the surf and talking about you know the football and things like that and then the service would start and we'd we'd all get into it and then afterwards we'd all go somewhere to hang out afterwards but one particular night I'm sitting in this pew and I'm looking for the door and and it was it was the night that it, I realised actually no one else was going to come and sit there, and I was actually literally sitting in the pew by myself with nobody else there. Well, and, I, yeah. and I remember thinking, far out, where did everyone go? And it was just bit by bit, but that night was a bit of a watershed for me. So that's how I started thinking about this stuff because I started thinking this is maybe not just a problem that my church at Guyan Anglican was going through. Maybe um, maybe a lot of young people aren't hanging around at the church, and not only that, but not only were young christian kids who were brought up in christian families leaving the church i hadn't seen a lot of young people who weren't christians actually come to church so for me it was a a double question i suppose yeah what was the kind of you obviously had that realization what was the kind of next step that you decided or you felt you needed to do after that well yeah at the time i was studying um political science and sociology at uni so i had an opportunity to to put a bit of time aside to study and try and work out if there were any ways I could 
work out why this problem was happening. And that's what led me to books like Mark Center and these ideas about changing culture actually means that young people and older people can actually have a disconnect. If you go back to, you know, I, I look back to the 1960s and I think we sometimes underestimate what a watershed that was in our cultural heritage because, and it's still impacting us today, but before the 1960s, there was a different kind of community that people lived in. But during that, that decade, young people began to develop their own style, their own music tastes, their own clothing, their own hairstyles, their own values around some of these new technologies like the pill that was coming out. Uh, so the sexual revolution came out of the 60s, the environmental movement, the modern feminist movement, uh, the gay rights movement. A whole heap of these movements came out of a generation of baby boomers that were coming of age in the 1960s who were looking to reinvent the world. And one of the side effects of that decade was there was a polarizing uh, of, of, of adults and young people where um, even in churches we see starting in the 1970s, churches begin to reform themselves up around this new generation gap. So young people who like drums and guitars in church had the youth service on Sunday night and the oldies who wanted to maintain the prayer book service in the Anglican church, they, they continued to have their traditional form of church in the morning. As these young people by the end of the 70s start having their own kids, then they can't make Sunday night as easily. So they start a third service in some churches, which happened at Grimer Anglican Church, where we developed a contemporary family service after a traditional service and maintained an evening youth service. So when I was growing up, I noticed that there was actually three generational gaps in our church. The, the uh, builder generation, the, the ones who'd gone through the war, the baby boomers who were predominantly meeting together on Sunday morning and then Gen X's that I was part of uh, in the evening. And, and what I think was interesting for me is there was like this inbuilt transience in our church. And also, unfortunately, amongst people my age, it seemed to me that people were becoming more consumeristic about church and actually wanting to have a church expression that they related to. So that uh, transience within the church and the consumerism I felt was making young people a bit more individualistic and if, if church didn't suit them um, then they just made an individual decision that maybe they'd look somewhere else for a church that did suit them. It's, it's, it's almost like a very interesting, like I feel like we've barely scratched the surface but at the moment I think we might leave it there to kind of wind it up and see it as an introduction to the shock absorber model. Or, sorry, we just want to call it the shockers or don't we? <laughs> um, but I think uh, there's plenty more to get into in the next few weeks in terms of how we can look at all the different cultural impacts of all the different shocks that we've had also and how the church has reacted to that. Yeah, yeah. But for today, let's leave it there. Um, yeah, cool. Thank, thanks very much, Stu. Yeah, thanks, um, Joel. It's we'll, good. We'll get into it again next week. Thanks. All right, mate. Thanks. Thanks.